You're listening to highlights from OTBAM, Off the Ball's new daily breakfast show. It's live every weekday morning from 7.45. Watch us on Facebook, YouTube or Twitter or listen live at offtheball.com. It was a phenomenal end to the weekend NFL action last night uh, with two field goals and a touchdown in the last minute and a half of the game between the Saints and the Vikings and absolutely wild scenes in Minnesota at the end of it. Uh, Mike Carlson, good morning to you. Um, none of us here in the uh, studio stayed up. At halftime at 17 nil. you think, okay, I can safely go to bed. I know what's going to happen here. What fools us? Yeah, well, half seventeen nil was um, was basically when I got home from doing the earlier game, uh, and uh, I, I thought pretty much the same thing. But uh, as soon as I turned on and started watching it, the game changed completely. And and the Saints um, down seventeen nothing to the Vikings in Minnesota took the game over sort of in the second half, uh, took advantage of a couple of mistakes. Drew Brees, as he had done the week before, w- was amazingly efficient uh, on offense. They sort of inexorably worked their way back, uh, eventually took the lead on a field goal. Uh, well, uh, took the lead. The Vikings came back and their offense was stalling. It actually looked like sa- like um, the Saints were the better defensive team in the second half. They got a 53-yard field goal from their kicker to, to go ahead. And then uh, New Orleans, they left New Orleans about a minute and a half. New Orleans came back and in a minute had their their own field goal from 43 um, to take the lead. And then it looked like they were dead. 25 seconds starting at the 25-yard line. They only got up to the 39. And Case Keenum, last play of the game, launches one up, you know, nowhere near the end zone. Um, he doesn't have that kind of arm. But Stefan Diggs goes up to catch it. And um, basically, Williams, the safety, the rookie safety, who had had an interception that basically started uh, New Orleans' comeback in the second half, goes to undercut him, basically. And if you watch the video, which I'm sure, you know, is up there for people to see, he literally runs under Stefan Diggs. And Diggs comes down, turns around, and goes untouched for the touchdown uh, and, we, and wins the game. It was the most phenomenal finish. And then being the NFL, they spent 20 minutes trying to get the teams back on the field to kick the extra point, which was unnecessary. And it never happened. And um Case Keenum basically just lined up a few guys and took a knee, uh, which was crucial because the point spread was 5.5 and the Saints covered the point spread because of that. All right. I didn't even notice that um, they covered. Okay. Wow. So like billions of dollars riding on whether or not they kick (laughs) the extra point and then he decides to kneel because there's no there's no risk of if if they kick the extra point and it gets blocked. It's only two points, isn't it, for the Saints? It is. Yeah. yeah, Okay. So there was no there was no risk of them actually uh, losing the game at that point. But uh, so let's talk about, there's a, a bunch of different things to talk about off, off the back of this, um, particularly Case Keenum. When the uh, pre-match announcement was made, they had decided that Teddy Bridgewater wasn't going to be the backup quarterback. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Maybe they've actually decided that if Keenum in, is in any way uh, not good, that they might pull him from the game. And they got out to such a good start that it was never really an issue. But for a period in the second half, there might have been some doubt. And maybe, just maybe, Sam Bradford might have been in the minds of the coaches. It was in my mind as well, because the the interception he threw to Marcus Williams was such a bad decision. Uh, he was under pressure. He was falling backwards. He just tossed the ball up in the air in, in basically the same kind of spot where the where the touchdown came. But to do that would would be such a dangerous thing, uh, you know, both to the team and, and both to Keenum, if you had to 
go back to him and let him play again, uh, that I can understand, you know, sticking with the guy who got you there. And, and as it turned out, fluke or not, um, it, it got them beyond. And, and of course, the, 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 the backstory of this is that all three of Minnesota's quarterbacks are out of contract this year. So they've gonna, they're going to have a difficult decision to make as to which one or two of the three that they, they bring back. Is Case Keenum the real deal now? You know, it, we, I think I said last week, it's a quarterback's league. And, and the way you go on the, on the games predicting them was primarily based on how much you trusted the quarterbacks involved. And right now you're down to, to four quarterbacks left, left in the final four games who are Nick Foles, Blake Bortles, and Case Keenum, and Tom Brady. <laughs> and, you know, Keenum was a journeyman, basically. He's had, a, had a, a really good season on a team with a really good defense and uh, a really good line. His receivers made Adam Thielen made a tremendous play that set up the, the field goal that put them ahead. So, you, you, he's the kind of guy in the NFL, traditionally, you're always going to want to try to improve on. Uh, you're probably never going to be happy with him as your starter. And whether it's because he's small, a smallish guy and the way he looks, or he doesn't have the huge arm or, or whatever, um, yeah, it's going to be a fascinating decision for them to make, whether they try to, you know, keep two of the three guys, uh, who, who becomes the number one, if they, if they try to have a, a battle. And of course they're probably going to lose their coordinator, offensive coordinator to a head coaching job somewhere, Pat Shermer. I want to pick you up on that point in the quarterbacks there because obviously Tom Brady is head and shoulders and knees above everybody else, it seems, in the quarterback rankings at the moment of the four remaining teams. But at the same time, it seems if one team is going to stop them, it's going to be the Vikings because of that potential home field advantage in the Super Bowl. That's going to be, I mean, that, that would be huge. And, and they've got to get past Philadelphia first. And, and, and that quarterbacking issue was the reason why Philadelphia were underdogs at home for the first time of any top-seeded team. Uh, and they, they match up. They're very similar, Minnesota and Philadelphia, kind of, um, you know, good but but not great offense, especially with Nick Foles running it and, and really strong defenses. Um, so either of those teams are probably going to be. In fact, all three of these teams, depending on how you rank um, defenses, you know, these are probably the three best defenses in the league, plus New England, who are by some you know metrics the best offense in the league. Um, so it, it's it's going to be a tough haul for New England, and it'll be a real challenge coaching wise to see if they can continue to win games with a defense that, if you look at the statistics, is last or second to last in the league. But if you look at the results, including sort of points allowed, are actually quite close to the top. They and the Eagles had virtually the same um, statistics in terms of points allowed and points scored this season. Uh, but that was the Eagles with Carson Wentz in terms of points scoring, not not Nick Foles. Just to, to talk a bit about Nick Foles. Foles was awful, particularly in that first quarter. He was throwing balls, couldn't throw screen passes, was was like throwing it off his receivers. And then suddenly seemed to find a bit of a groove, particularly in that second half where he started to find receivers and started to complete third down passes and look like a serviceable NFL quarterback. How did that happen? Um, he is a serviceable NFL quarterback. He's got limitations. Mo- the main one of which is that he's kind of slow. He, the time between seeing and then getting rid of the ball is, is long. What they did was go back to elements of Brian Kelly's offense, their previous coach. Uh, and they were using something that's called a read pass option. Uh, 
Kelly did this at the University of Oregon, and his quarterbacks were, were primarily runners first, including Marcus Mariota. What, what was happening was they were giving him a very easy decision to make. Move toward the handoff to the running back. Watch, watch the linebacker on that side. If he comes toward the run, throw the ball to the receiver who's coming behind him on basically a slant. And he was throwing a lot of easy slant patterns to receivers who weren't tightly covered. Um, and it worked like a charm. It, it, it was actually perfect. And it, I think what that does, it's not only efficient for your offense, but it gets his confidence up to the point where he can, he can make other plays. And, and, you know, if, if the Eagles probably if Jay Ajay had doesn't fumble, on the first series of the game, the Eagles probably, you know, go off with a big lead there. And Atlanta, if they don't get the turnovers, probably don't score. I mean, they, you know, they only scored off, off getting great field position on turnovers, only got 10 points and their, their defense actually played pretty well um, in only allowing 15. Okay. So the, the RPOs make a lot of sense for turning Nick Foles into a serviceable NFL quarterback. But how the hell does Blake Bortles turn to somebody who can go through four separate progressions and then finally <laughs> find the out to TJ Yeldon at like the key moment of the game? Bortles is probably the most frustrating guy to try to analyze. Um, you know, you mentioned screen passes. Last week, Blake Bortles was missing four-yard screen passes by three yards um, and, and seems to have trouble with, with that. Uh, I think Bortles... I hate to say, you know, I hate to try to be an amateur psychologist and say Bortles, you know, as he gains confidence, as he makes a play, then goes on to, to make others. But they, they certainly were doing a really good job of mixing things up for him, which is something having done Jags games every week um, uh, this season. When they come out and mix it up, in, in other words, don't hand the ball to Leonard Fournette on first down, hand the ball to Leonard Fournette on second down, make Blake Bortles throw on third down and long if they've, if they've stopped him. Bortles becomes a lot more effective off play action passes. In other words, faking, faking the run. Um, he was running himself a little bit, which is what he did last week and, and was very successful for them. He still didn't have a great game. Uh, you know, in, in terms of statistics and all, but he did what they needed him to do. And again, the Jacksonville defense provided one touchdown, set up another one. And, and, and that's what Jacksonville is, is, is a defense first team. And um, the, the last touchdown of the game for them to Tommy Bohannon, uh, where they, they run Bohannon as the lead blocker into the line, fake the handoff to uh, Fournette and Bohannon just just run straight through the middle of the field. Nobody's gone with him because everybody assumes it's going to be a run. And he just boom, threw, threw the ball and Bohannon made the catch. I, I just thought that was my favorite play of the weekend, really. Yeah, I, th I think we need to be open to the possibility here that Blake Bortles is the greatest NFL quarterback to ever play the game. But uh, <laughs> if, if we look at the, the Patriots on Saturday night, they sacked Marcus Mariota eight times. It was a playoff record for Patriots. Is that to do with more the, the Titans O-line? Do, do Jacksonville have a better O-line? and Or is it something that they should be seriously worried about, that this um, Pat's offensive line, or defensive line, I should say, can actually really kill Bortles and he won't even get the chance to prove that he is the greatest quarterback in the league? No, that, that was purely situational. Uh, the Titans were in such a hole that they were they were having to pass, and the Patriots knew it. They came out in the first half determined to stop Derrick Henry from beating them. Uh, Tennessee was going to have to beat them through the air, and for a while it looked like the Titans uh, could do it. They got a couple of you know what would you say fifty fifty calls went against them, um, 
and then the Patriots went off to a 21-7 lead, and, and somebody called me up and said, well, you know, 21-7, it was 21-3 last week, and the Titans won. I said, yeah, but that was against the Chiefs, not the Patriots. The Patriots aren't going to let them uh, get back in the game. So uh, Jacksonville's offensive line played really well against Pittsburgh. And, and strangely enough, in a, in a game with, with such a high score, which I was telling everyone to take the under of the points, which I think was 41, and they wound up scoring 87 between them. It was actually a, a defensive game. And, and it was pure Steelers. You know, what you get, what you see is what you get. They're big time players made big plays, but they also failed a couple of times play calling wise. Um, they got two touchdowns on fourth and, and long. Uh, you know, fourth and nine, fourth and eleven, to a pair of forty-three yard touchdown passes, which is which is absolutely insane uh, when you think of it. But they couldn't twice; they couldn't convert fourth and and less than a yard, uh, which which really hurt them. And I, I think the Patriots against the Jags is going. To, it's going to be a lot like the Patriots against the Titans because I think they will concentrate on taking Leonard Fournette out of the game and trying to make Blake Bortles beat them. Uh, just like they did last week, making um, Mariota beat him. The, the problem is that the Jacksonville defense is a lot better than the Tennessee defense, and how they go, how they decide to play New England, um, you know, is going to be fascinating. Especially since Tom Coughlin is in charge of football mm. for the Jags, and Coughlin, of course, has beaten Bill Belichick twice in Super Bowls head to head, and seems to have his number in that sense. I think when he was head coach of the Jags, he beat the Patriots in the championship game as well. Is that right? Back in the 90s? They lost that championship game in 2007, but it was like a 35-32 loss. And it was sort of one of those, it was a week 17 game that both teams played for real. And the take that the Giants had coming off of that was that... Um, we can play with these guys. You know, they were lucky to beat us. It was it was very similar. If New England had met Pittsburgh, that game between the two of them in, in week 16, where, where, you know, Pittsburgh lost on the on the Juju Smith-Schuster touchdown that, that wasn't a touchdown. You know, what both teams took away from that was that either team could win that game. And, and I think that's what the Giants, talking to OC, that's certainly what the, what the Giants uh, took with, you know, took away from the game. One of the you things- like this, you like this new rig? Yeah, uh, my audio, my audio must be a lot better. Now. Uh, yeah, vastly, vastly improved. And plus, I get to play like airplane pilot while you get when, <laughs> once you guys are gone. <laughs> we should get you a little controller. That, that can be our next. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, w- I was looking at the. Um, if you look at the uh, basic, the the standard stats, the the Patriots are first in in yards. Um, and they're tied for second in points with the Eagles, but they're 29th in yards allowed. And if you look at the kind of advanced stats like uh, football outsiders, DVOA, the Patriots are first in offense and next to last in defense. And everybody else is sort of the Jags are one in defense. The Vikings are two. The Eagles are five. Um, so, yeah, this is it's a fascinating weekend coming up with three, you know, three teams whose strength is their defense against one whose whose strength is their offense. And everybody says defense wins championships. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't always believe that. But it, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I get why you wouldn't, but like it does become a cliche because it's been true so many times. The, the one thing about Bortles, right, just to go back to the, the, the um, Steelers game is that like, so Big Ben would drop that bomb on Antonio Brown and the crowd would go wild and you would go, okay, well, this is the bit where they're going to come back. But he would be calm Bortles would be calm on the next series and would like drop a bomb on uh, Keelan Cole at one point for 45 yards. And you're like, holy moly. 
Like that's not what I expected him to be able to do. That that level of confidence and execution. You and uh, what fifty five million other people who were who were watching the game, including people from Jacksonville, who I think were surprised when you looked at the the receiving statistics. Um, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, Lee. Um, Marquise Lee and and TJ Yeldon, the running back, each had three catches, and uh, Fournette had two, and nobody else on the team had more than one catch. But they were all kind of big pet catches, like you said to Cole. Um, there was one to Koyak, the tight end. There was one early in the game to O'Shaughnessy, the other tight end. It, it was like they couldn't put together. It, they were they were grab they were grabbing what Pittsburgh was going to give them, and Bortles was finding that. You know, it was a it was a great a great um, bit of play design and Bortles had to be able to execute that. And we haven't seen that from the Jags in more than a couple of games all season. Uh, and I think that makes them very dangerous for the Patriots. And, and of course, the reason why people say defense wins, you know, wins championships is that over a 16 game season, any team will only face two or three outstanding defenses. Therefore their offense can run riot. And when you look at total points and total yardage, that's based a lot on, on beating the teams that aren't as good as you. But when you play the really good defenses, it it puts more of a test on, on that offense and uh, only really great offenses can kind of rise to that. I think Given the level of experience that the Patriots have, that makes them the favourites from this point forward. Um, taking all things into consideration, right? I'm sure. I'm sure they will be. Um, and and you know, watching them against Tennessee, it was I, up until I, on 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 Sunday morning. I said that that first half against Tennessee, the second quarter, really, where they came back with three touchdowns, was it was just watching poetry. Um, in football because they did it all by formation, motion, and play design. None of it was kind of pounding it down your pounding it down your throat or letting your guys run and, and finding them like Roethlisberger was doing. All of it was lining up in a formation, Brady looking at it and seeing where the matchup was going to be and getting the matchup they wanted most of the time. Um, to free Rob Gronkowski in single coverage where, you know, it's very hard to cover him with one guy, free Chris Hogan, who's been out for eight weeks, you know, for the only pass he caught for a touchdown. It, it was just beautiful to watch. They um, And Tony Romo was making the most of it because he was calling half the plays before they happened. So they'd line up and say, well, they're running left again uh, because they had a mismatch there. They had three blockers on two defenders on the left side of Pittsburgh's defense. And Pittsburgh didn't, uh, sorry, not Pittsburgh, Tennessee, and Tennessee didn't seem to be able to adjust. And I said Pittsburgh because it was Dick LeBeau, who used to be the Pittsburgh coordinator, who's Tennessee's coordinator, is sitting there. Um, and I just thought this is fantastic football. And, and I think how much you, regardless of the line, how much faith you have in the Patriots is partly Tom Brady, but mostly it's how much faith you have in their ability to coach and scheme both offensively and defensively to be able to take those other three teams out of their games. And that's what um, New England, they want to try to make you play left-handed uh, when you're a right-handed team. One last question about the, the Patriots. Um, American football is this weird situation where you can go and get a new job while you're still in your current job and everybody knows that you're going to take that new job, but you still have the biggest games of your career on the line. It's I, As far as I know, it's really the only situation in world sport that I can think of where that happens in such a public fashion anyway. Does it have any impact that the two coordinators are both going to be leaving Belichick at the end of the season for these next couple of weeks? Like, how do they compartmentalize all that? No. 
Um, you know, it's one thing when a coach walks out on you like Chuck Fairbanks did or Bill Parcells did to the Patriots famously both, you know, before Super Bowl games, they kind of announced they're taking other jobs. Um, everyone knows they're leaving. I mean, the big story in that last week was, oh, New England, you know, feud between Bob Kraft and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. How are they going to be able to, you know, it's going to affect them. How are they going to be able to play with all these guys feuding? Well, the story afterwards was what feud? You know, and and everyone was headlining. Oh, the Patriots rose above all this tension and stuff. They had no tension. They were there. They were there to play to play the game, and everyone was concentrating on it. And that's going to be uh, the story next week. And if they get to the Super Bowl the week before, everybody knows that McDaniel's and Patricia will be head coaches next year. Um, doesn't matter. You know, it, it, what it says to the team, I think, is we've got two really good coordinators that teams are after as head coaches, and um, you know. We'll go. We'll go on and win. The situation's worse in college football in a way because coaches literally do leave their teams after the season, but before the bowl games. Um, and interestingly, Scott Frost from Central Florida, who went unbeaten all season, um, and you know, and and barely made a dent in the national playoff rankings, um, he's going to Nebraska and announced it, but he stayed with the team through the bowl game. And that was so unusual that I think the team felt the same thing. You know, our coach is with us at least for the rest of this season. Let's make the best of it. Yeah. One last then question about the Vikings. When you have one of those walk-off victories like that and the whole city goes crazy, how easy is it to come down and get ready for the next game? Like, is there any possibility that that emotion isn't the manifestation of Minnesota as a team of destiny, but that actually that's the highlight reel that will be their season in, in miniature? That's a really good question. Um, and again, it's uh, it's psychology that's probably beyond my ken. But um, I think that I think the celebration ends tomorrow or today. They go in and watch film today. They probably get Tuesday off um, and then they start practicing again. They've got to travel to Philadelphia. I think they'll be more concerned with the things they couldn't do against the saints. And the biggest one of those was protect case Keenum. Uh, and Philadelphia is going to be a bigger challenge than the saints offensive line was, uh, they, they had a, they had a, a sub tackle in, um, on the right side and that hurt them. That hurt them a lot. But, but basically Keenum was under pressure most of that second half. And, and that's the main thing I think they're going to have to, to clean up. And then just finally on that, has the ghost of Blair Walsh finally been exercised from Minnesota? <laughs> That's a great one, and and that was that was in everybody's mind. Uh, not only and the TV the TV people ran a little clip of of, of Walsh and and uh, Gary Anderson who hadn't missed a field goal all year and then missed one in a in a championship game against Atlanta. Um, I think Forbath kicking that fifty three yarder was just you know was just incredible. Uh, uh, you, you get into position to give him a chance. Well, fifty three is is a long shot uh, for for almost every kicker and. Uh, I don't think they'll have to worry about that. But of course, if he misses a kick, <laughs> you'll hear you'll hear it again next week. Those you know those kind of things are only as good as as your last kick or your last game. Mike, great stuff. Thanks a million. Uh, have a great morning. You've been listening to a highlights podcast from OTBAM. If you want to watch us live, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube every morning from seven forty-five a.m.